So we're going to be talking about houses today, and we're going to be talking about the house of Moses and the house of Jesus, and we're going to get into that in a little bit. And I'm excited to talk about how Jesus is better. We talked last week about how Jesus is better um, than the prophets and then the angels, and this week we're going to be talking about how Jesus is better than Moses and go into our second parenthetical warning. And so who can tell me what a parenthetical warning is? It's like in the parentheses, yeah. It's like the side note, like, oh, we're talking about this, but just so you know, here, we're going to talk about this also. So if you want to turn to Hebrews 3 with me, I'm supposed to be sitting because I have a large cut on my leg, and I have too much energy to sit, so we'll see how that goes. Oh, that's why I'm like this. Okay. Um, we're going to start in Hebrews 3. So I'm going to read really quickly in my version. A couple people texted me last week and said, what, what are you reading from? And it is a um, literal Greek translation, so it doesn't always like flow really pretty in like a sentence structure. I um, mean, it's by the professor who I took, Dr. Ron Sauer, um, Hebrews from at Moody. And so that's what I'm looking at because it's just the most literal concepts on the page. And But you can follow along in the readout that you have also. It says, therefore, we're going to talk about that. Remember what's the therefore, therefore. Holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly invitation, carefully consider that the messenger and high priest of our confession, Jesus, has been faithful to the one who appointed him, as also Moses was in all his house. In fact, this one is counted deserving of far more glory than Moses, inasmuch as a builder enjoys more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the one who has built all things is God. And Moses was faithful in all his house as an esteemed servant for a testimony about those truths which would later be spoken. But Christ is faithful as a son in charge over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of our hope. So as we go in, we see what the first word is. Do you have the same first word there, therefore? All right, so what is the therefore, therefore? What is this connecting us to? I hope this is a question that when you were reading through this chapter this week, you were able to see it's... Lauren, it's the end. It's, mm. <clears throat> what is the therefore, therefore? It's connecting us back to chapter 2, verse 17, when Jesus was being made human to be merciful and faithful, right? We talked last week about the reasons for the incarnation. If you didn't receive the email, I wrote out all the reasons for the incarnation in case you weren't able to catch on to them. And so we see there that we see that this is talking about, okay, because Jesus has been made human and he's merciful and faithful, then we're going to talk about all we're about to talk about right now. The word partakers, super important word right there, all right? And so what does it mean to be our partaker? A partaker is a very different way of kind of addressing us in this point because he's trying to make sure that we're not just hearers, right? We're not just groupies of what's going on and what Jesus is doing. We're actually getting in it, right? We're actually getting our hands dirty in the message of the gospel and what is going on and everything that we're talking about and Jesus being better. It says, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of heavenly invitation. What does your say? Yes. Yep, share. So, well, share. No, let's cross it out from partakers. Um, please edit the Bible for me. No, um... And so one of the things he says, one of the things he says here in this first verse, which is super important, and it's the first command of chapter 3, and it's both a command and an application and an invitation. 
And I think, does anyone see what that command is? What is the command there? And it's actually a similar wording to what we've seen so far in the first two chapters. He says, consider Jesus. Carefully consider, and then he goes on to talk about Jesus. And so to consider, it means to think carefully about it, to form an opinion about it, and to have continuous observation. So this word is not just a boxed-in word. This word is something that actually should open our minds to be able to say, this is something that is continually happening. It is continually going on. One of the whole purposes, what we've talked about, of the letter of Hebrews is to spend time reflecting on the betterness of Jesus, right? The greatness of Jesus. That's what he's still making a case for in this point. He's still talking to the same audience. He's still talking to the Hebrew people and being able to say, hey, just so you know, keep in mind, we're still talking about this. Jesus is still better, and now we're going to talk about why. Verses 2 through 4 go on to compare Moses to Jesus. So I created a little bit of a PowerPoint. It's going to be up on this screen and back on that TV screen also for anything that had a list so that you could maybe look at that and follow along more easily. So we're going to talk about why. Like, okay, great. We talked about why Jesus, why they were comparing Jesus to angels because that seemed like kind of a strange place to start in the book of Hebrews. Now we're going to talk about why are we comparing Moses to Jesus. Well, because Moses was one of the leading figures in Judaism. He, just like Jesus, was both a messenger and a priest. His followers, the followers of Moses, led to discussions on the similarities between Jesus and Moses. That was already kind of a topic of conversation going on at this time. They were already beginning to see, like, okay, there's some similarities, but there's also some differences. And so the writer of Hebrews is seeing that discussion happen in the culture, taking that discussion and turning it into something that they can actually have the final answers on once and for all. And the people and the the readers of the book of Hebrews had an emotional affection for Moses. He was seen as their leader. They, they were um, loyal to him, and they had a deep longing and affection for him. And so that's why we start off the book here, comparing Moses to Jesus. Moses was faithful. Jesus was also faithful. And Jesus is greater in his faithfulness. And so when we look at how is Jesus greater, basically in verses 2 to 4, the author is going to tell us, well, because Jesus is actually the creator, and Moses is the creation. He talks about that Jesus is the builder, he is the designer, and Moses is actually what was being built up for a special purpose at a special time. Moses is a servant of God's house, but Jesus is the son in God's house, and Jesus is the one who's actually inheriting the house, right? And so in so, so many ways, this in the mind of the reader, the Hebrew reader who is reading this was like, oh, wow, that's a good point. And so he's really setting them apart. He's setting Jesus apart as better and as different. And so if we go into verses 5 and 6, we see, okay, what was Moses' house? What are we talking about here? Was it on thick strapper? Did he have it pinchested? No. Uh, Moses' house was Israel. And then he goes on to say, and so that was Moses' house, but what is Jesus' house? And Jesus' house is us. He tells us right there that we are his house, for he's the son, and he's over all things, and he's responsible for these things, and he's over us. So we have been made inheritance. And if you think about that, sometimes I like to think like, oh, what kind of inheritance am I? (laughs) I'm a cranky, cranky, angry inheritance. You know, like depending on the day, right? Like what is it that Jesus is like, wow, I'm so glad I get you. And we're going to go on to talk about how that just turns and unfolds into something beautiful and how Jesus' love for us is consistent and continually pursuing us despite the kind of like hot mess of an inheritance we sometimes are. But at the same time, I think that's something for us to 
to look at, that that's what he gets as his reward for all the things that he did for us. And so verse 6 starts, or it has the very, 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 very crucial word. And so the word that we're going to talk about here is so important because it sets up the coming warning we're about to talk about and the whole entire rest of the chapter and into chapter 4 defending this next word. Does anyone know with a little, and it's little, I'll, I'll give you a hint. Nope, close though. Close to but. If. And so circle this word, put colors on it, whatever you may want to do, because this is actually going to be a thematic word through the book of Hebrews also. Just as better as a thematic word, the word if is also, because it makes a contingency. And so sometimes these passages that we're talking about today and these warning passages, they're hard passages because it reminds us and defines that God is not just always loving unconditionally all the time despite, but that he's also just. And his, his love for us has expectations on the way that we're going to be able to act and be able to see what we are. And so we're going to talk about that all as we go through here. As we look closely at the language of this verse and the tenses that we see, it's very important, and I want everyone to write this down, because it's going to take your mind possibly a little bit to like wrap around, but we're all going to wrap around together. That this is talking about something that we are being, not becoming. Okay, So when we talk about being his inheritance and being a part of his house and holding confidence and rejoicing in our hope and all the different aspects of this and the different things we're about to get into in the warning, this is talking about us as not what we are necessarily, but it's what we're being. So it's a present tense concept, not just what we are becoming. So I think often when we think about being Jesus' inheritance, when we think about being part of his house, we have kind of a concept of like what it'll be like in eternity when that's like a sealed deal and everything is done. But the verbiage here is so important to understand because it's telling us actually that's what you are and what you're becoming, but it's also what you are. So if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of hope, that is the condition for being what we are now. So it does not say, hey, you'll become God's house if and when, right? It says, if you continue to hold fast the confidence and hope, you will be that now. So it shows if we hold fast, then we are God's house. This describes us now and what we are. It's evidenced by other parts in the passage where it continues to talk about that God's people are confident in God. We have the opportunity to boast and rejoice in this hope. We have the opportunity to hold fast. And the implication is that we're looking to God for security and satisfaction for the future, but they're also being a partaker currently in what is going on at the present moment. And that is a theme of Hebrews. He's consistently talking about the implications for now and the implications for the future. And so I think a lot of times we live in the future and we think, oh, well, that'll happen, this'll do, that'll whatever. And actually the implications of who Jesus is and how this is affecting our lives come right now. And the other part is it, part of it is the hard part, right? If we don't hold fast, then we aren't. Then we're not a partaker in it, right? Um, I don't know if, I mean, we can think of a million different examples. Like, okay, I'm going to be like a Girl Scout. Well, do you go to Girl Scouts? Do you do anything? No. Do you wear the cute little shirt? No. Do you have any badges? No. Well, then, are you a Girl Scout? Right? And so there is a conditional clause in here in the word if, and we're going to continue to talk about that. But I think that's very important for us to begin to wrap our minds around. And so as he's talking about a house, as he's talking about this, there are very intentional visual intentions in what he's writing. He's hoping that the readers will kind of visualize what he's talking about. 
And so I think for you, a huge takeaway from this that I would love for you just to write down and come back to and reflect on is, okay, so what does your house look like? Moses was considered faithful. Would, you, would God consider you faithful? If you had to draw a picture of your house, what would it look like? Moses' house is being esteemed here. And we know Moses made some terrible mistakes, right? But in the end, he's still being seen as faithful. He's still being seen as someone who was a great man of the faith in this area. But if we were to draw a picture of our house, what would it look like? If we were to see our house from the outside and what people see about the house of faith and the house of confidence and the house of rejoicing and hope that we're building, would it have curb appeal? Would it be like a hot mess? Would it be so pristine that it actually wasn't real? And it had an inauthenticity to it? Does your house reflect you? Or are you trying to be like someone else? Does it have internal structures that support people seeing the gospel playing out in your life? And I think right now, sometimes it's important for us to see that 100 years from now, what evidence will be left of the life that we've had in the house and the foundation that we've built? So here... So many hundreds of years later, Moses is still being seen, right, as someone who built a foundation of a house that was sturdy and that was faithful and that was confident and that was rejoicing in hope. And I think that's something that we have to continually be looking at and identifying in our own lives. What I love about the show Fixer Upper, and for many of you know that we renovated our own home and that was great Um, and long and not great. Um, And so... One of the things I love about that, and I love the concept of this show, I love that they picked the name Fixer Upper in the title because the Lord desires to do that to all of our hearts, right? And so Chip and Joanna Gaines, one of the things I secretly love about them, I've actually never, like, been interested in people I didn't actually know before, and I am actually <laughs> secretly interested in them. I even read the book. Um, and so because I love, they have, a, they, they love the gospel, and they love to make it on display for people to see, whether it's in a house, whether it's in a relationship, whether it's in reviving a town that was dying, whatever it may be, that is their intention and that is their heart. And so when we look at our own hearts and we see a house that we don't like, well, we have every opportunity to make changes in that heart and to make changes in that life, to become someone who leaves a legacy that is faithful and who is confident and who rejoices in hope. So this leads us into... Verse 7, which we're going to go 7 through 19, basically, and then we're going to go into chapter 4. This is the warning. So here we go again. We are in the parentheses. We're in the side note. We're in the parenthetical warning, the second one. We talked about the first one, and now we're in the second one, and he's saying, you must hold fast to the end. And that's the summary of everything we're about to talk about. You must hold fast to the end. Do not doubt and disbelieve. And so the language of this warning is very serious. And this is not like, hey, I was hoping maybe you would like to maybe try to just keep going. Uh, no, he's, it's very serious, somber language. And it's important to keep in mind that, again, a common theme of the book of Hebrews, right, is to encourage and empower the reader to empower us to stay focused and to fight to maintain assurance in Christ, right? Remember, the first warning was do not drift. It's a slow process. Be on guard. Do not drift. Continue to watch Jesus. And here he's continuing to say, you have to continue to hold fast to the end. Stay focused. And we know that the Hebrews, they were in dire threat of apostasy, right? Of looking at everything in Jesus and being like, actually, I'm going to go back to Judaism because it's so much easier and makes so much more sense in my life culturally and contextually. And that's what he's encouraging them not to. And so I'm going to give you a little little, um, teaser, right? 
And so Lisa, do you have the Hebrews 13? And this is a little teaser for whose strength are we going to have to be able to endure and persevere? I'm going to give away the end of the book. Hopefully you'll all come back still, right? <laughs> so this is Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Go ahead and read it, Lisa. And may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, <clears throat> the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every, everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So by whose strength will we endure and persevere? Give it away. It's going to be through the power of God and through the power of Jesus, right? Our part is to do his will and do what is pleasing in his sight by obeying the warnings and embracing the promises. So we dig into the warning. We look at verses 7 through 11. This is going to be a citation or the illustration of the warning, okay? And so 7, verse 7, is obviously it's quoting scripture here. So he is quoting here. Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. That's what this is quoting. I'm going to read it to you in the version that I have here. It says, Today, if you heed his voice, don't ever harden your hearts, as happened in the rebellion. So, I'll read the next line. During the period of testing in the desert. So he's talking about the Israelites in the desert. One thing that's really important is that word rebellion, and I'm not sure what's in your version, but it actually literally means the time of the embitterment. Okay? So yes, Israel was rebelling, but it's the time in which their hearts were all bitter. And I think that's like a great picture for us to sometimes picture ourselves in the world that we live in. Where your ancestors actually tested me grievously, although they saw my deeds for 40 long years. For this reason, I was disgusted with this generation and lamented. They have continually gone astray in their heart. Moreover, they refuse to acknowledge my ways. So I swore in my wrath. If they enter the rest, they will definitely not enter into the place of my rest. So verse 7 is quoting that Psalm 95, 7 through 11, going back to what God said about the Israelites, and he's bringing the Hebrew line back to the Old Testament, back to the Israelites, and pointing to how God has worked in the past. The Israelites, despite great workings of power, that they got to watch God provide and protect for them in the land of Egypt, they continue to test God. And so much so that they continue to doubt and they continue to grumble with disbelief. And I think our hearts can all agree with that sometimes, right? I feel like this whole week has been me working with people who I'm like, actually, you did that because you didn't trust God. At the end of the day, you didn't trust God. So you felt like you needed to take that into your own hands and go and make it happen. And so I think that we can really empathize with the Israelites in that point. I actually don't like what you're doing, so I'm going to grumble. I'm going to doubt that. I'm going to doubt that this is actually going to turn out for good. I see your provision and your protection all around me, but somehow this disbelief is going to be what I hold on to when I act out of. And so what was God's response to Israel? Well, he gave them to wander. He gave them to die by the sword, to not enter his rest in his promised land. He had sustained them. He had freed them. He had blessed them. He had given them his very visual, almost tangible presence, but their satisfaction and perseverance with him did not last. And the writer of Hebrews wants the reader's perseverance to last, and he wants our perseverance to last. So we have a lot more in common with the Israelites sometimes than we ever wish to agree upon and wish to admit. Verse 7 says, the Holy Spirit is that he who admonishes. So who is speaking in this morning? It's the Holy Spirit who's speaking to us. And I would just like to add for the record that when the Holy Spirit speaks to us, we should probably listen. 
starts off by saying today in verse 7. This concept, this word today, is used eight times in the book of Hebrews, and it is the concept that is the current opportunity to hear God's voice and elicit immediate action. So when we have, like, the word today, that can be like the Today Show, right? Like, there's all sorts of ways that the word today can be, and that's why I want to constantly be bringing you into the conceptualization of what these words meant to them when they were hearing these words, so that our hearts can kind of go on the same journey when we hear these words. Today, the current opportunity to hear God's voice and elicit immediate action. So as we go through the rest of this, I want you to be thinking about that. Okay, wow, what is the immediate action that even today that I need to be taking? Verse 8 says, do not harden your heart. What does this mean? To harden your hearts is to deliberately and persistently so resist the divine will that God's truth no longer exerts any influence on that person. It's rebellion. It's that embitterment that we talked about. It's the embitterment. Oh, I was going to bring my book I wrote on bitterness. I forgot. It's a beautiful little picture book that I illustrated, and it's really funny, and he's all the time. We'll get to it. I'll send pictures. Um, because it really gives a concept of when our heart is embittered, our heart is hard. And then that hard heart, it's not malleable anymore. It's not soft. It doesn't listen to things very well. And after a period of time when we have deliberately and persistently resisted what God wants for us, whether through obedience, whether it's the nudges of his voice in our life, we get to a place where we begin to see that he turns us over to that hardness of heart. Verse 9 talks about the Israelites testing God. To test God is to deliberately act contrary to his will to see whether or not he will hold his command. This is one of the greatest heartaches of my life is, I think, in the field of counseling is watching people test God and choosing what they want because of the disbelief in their hearts and doing it anyways and then being surprised when there's consequences. Um, There are things that just grieve me to watch. I know that you have just opened up your life to so much hurt and it breaks my heart to go through this process with people. And honestly, secretly, it sometimes makes me really mad. Like, okay, now we're all going to have to walk through this because of the choices that made, because you wanted what you wanted, when you wanted, and you didn't trust God to be able to give that to you. And so here we see that the Israelites tested God. They deliberately acted contrary to his will to see whether he would hold his command. We see that in Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7, Exodus chapter 16, we see that on display. The ways that they did it is they continued to ask, um, is, is God among us? Like, is he even here? They sat in judgment of God's ways, and they complained of the desert hardships. And then they started to ask, well, I don't know if God is really going to punish us, right? Like, I think we can probably go and do this and build that, like, idol and do whatever we want to because, I don't know, how far can we go before he intervenes? And I think all of our hearts have a similar thread to them. It might be big ways. It might be small ways. But we continue to pursue and continue to test God at the limits of how much we can disobey before he intervenes. And so there in verse 9, it talks about the deeds. <clears throat> These are the deeds are the many, many acts of mercy and provision and protection that the Lord provided for them. I think a lot of times we are so quick to jump over the deeds that the Lord has done in our life and not to absorb them, not to tell everyone around us, to not bring them onto Facebook or whatever it may be and be like, hey, I need to tell you the mercy and provision and protection that I've seen the Lord working in my life. And we are so quick to be like grumbling and complaining. 
And I think as a takeaway, that's a huge one that I encourage all of us to be able to see is sometimes life is hard, and so we can lament that. That is different than grumbling and complaining. And how do we make much of God in the mercy, provision, and protection that he is having in our lives? So verse 10 says that they had gone astray in their heart. He is not focused on their actions, but he is focused on their heart condition. And so often we gauge our okayness by the actions that are happening in us, by the way our kids are acting, right? Well, okay, okay, that's fine. And we miss the heart, and we miss the fact that God looks at the heart. The actions, they're just, they're just an overflow. He's looking at the heart and what was happening there. They didn't value God's ways. They should have known and had every opportunity to know God's ways, but they had drifted and they had neglected. And they didn't take the trouble to instead, right? We're going to talk about that word instead. I told you that's one of my favorite words in counseling. It's coming up soon, so buckle up. It's coming. Um, They had just drifted. They'd gone astray in their hearts. It was a slow process. So verse 11, we begin to see God's response to them. Here he speaks up and he says, So I swore in my wrath, they will definitely not enter into my place of rest. We're going to talk a little bit about what rest is and why it's called rest. Rest is literally, literally, it's actually in this word, what he's referring to is the promised land and the life that they had in Canaan. But this represented a place that was not perfect, but it was where God wanted them to be where he would supply them with what they needed for abundant life, as Jesus describes in John 10.10. It was a place of spiritual blessing where there was no more striving, a relaxation in the presence of God, and peace due to no fear or anxiety. And so here he's talking about if disobedient people entered into his promised land, that would have made a mockery of him, right? And so his rest was created and it was sustained for people who obeyed him and who continually obeyed him. And so why is salvation called rest? This is from Dr. Sauer Moody. He says it's because it's a place of ceasing where your own good works didn't get you anywhere. And so you can just rest in the fact that Jesus had accomplished all the good works for you and was currently and continually providing that for you. It was a place of completion where everything that was necessary was divinely provided, like we just talked about, the peace the joy, the place where God would meet you. Not necessarily, again, that it was a perfect place in in this promised land that God had created for them or in the spiritual rest that we're called to enter into when we're living in obedience, right? That's what this is all about. This is all about when we live in obedience, we get to a place in our lives where we have the opportunity to rest in God because we have honored him, we have pleased him, and now he gets to show up and he gets to cease, do the good works for us, be our place of completion, There's a cessation, the growing freedom from raging passions, vices, sins, worry, unhappiness, meaninglessness, etc. Michael talked about on Sunday how in the Sermon on the Mount, as we're going through this, and we talk about anger, right? There is a concept that, like, when you come to Jesus, he's not even going to address the orge passions and anger that you have because that just needed to stop. That's actually just not part of the life of a believer anymore, and that's inherently assumed in the text there. And that's a part of this too. Cessation that when we come to Jesus, when we are entering into this salvation, that there's a growing freedom from the things that try to control us and try to destroy us and try to destroy unity and what that looks like. There's contentment that we increasingly enjoy God's own peace, joy, power, and we experience life now with the graces of God. And there's contemplation. There's a satisfaction. We talked about how 
it's so big of a deal to say that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God because that mean that meant that his job was completed. And for us, in rest and salvation, there's a, there's a contemplation and a satisfaction that allows us to be able to just rest that now we don't have to strive anymore. We just get to sit there and reflect on that. So I think a lot of times we have choices that we make in disobedience or in bad attitudes or whatever it may be that keep us from entering into this rest. Maybe there's choices and life directions that we've made in a, in a broken spirit, in, in rebellion, in embitterment, and there's still chains that, we, chains that we submit to. We talked last week that one of the primary reasons for the incarnation is that Jesus would free us from fear. And I think that directly ties to this concept, that sometimes there are still chains that we submit to that keep us from entering into this rest because our hearts have gone astray, because our hearts have drifted, and because we have tested God. So verses 12 through 15, this is the application of the warning. It starts off with, beware. And then there's an intimate title of brothers. So he is warning them, beware, brothers, lest any, lest there be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief in falling away from the living God. Any one of you, all believers need to examine themselves. This is not something that any of us are like, you know what, I'm pretty good, actually, so... I'm just taking these notes to have to help other people and let these applications be given to them. No, it's all of us. An evil heart of unbelief. This is one that does what the Israelites did. They didn't trust. And we've already talked a little bit about how at the core of so much sin and so much sadness and so many things that we bring upon our lives is the core of unbelief. That they would be falling away, falling away from the living God. And again, this is the concept, and this is apostasy, the deliberate and permanent rejection of the gospel that results in being cut off from the Lord, creating distance with the people of God. And so this verse, verse 12, ends in a grammatical, I don't know what you call it, thing. Um, that is, there's a sudden silence, and he doesn't, he doesn't complete this thought. And so if you're reading this in, in the Greek, and you see, he, he, he doesn't, like, wrap, remember, we talked about how, like, much of a scholar the writer is, right? He doesn't wrap this thought, thought up and make it really nice and transition to the next verse. He just lets it hang. So there's a sudden silence, an incompletion of the thought, and that's known because it was either too wonderful to continue to try to wrap up or too terrible to put into words. And so that's why when we talk about the language here, it's very serious. And a lot of that is in these little nuances of the language and the way that it's written because he's saying to them, um, I, I actually, I can't even go on. Like, I don't know what to say. That's what I can say. I can't even talk about that anymore because it's actually too terrible to think about falling away from the living God. We go on to verse 13. And it says, right, one of my favorite words. What is the word? Oh, no. Instead. Gosh. We're going to retranslate your thing. Um, but, but. Or what did you say, but? I mean, that's like, that's a good one, too. I'll take it. Yes, but with one T. Yes, but with one T. God's giant but. Um, so instead, remember I said it's my favorite counseling word, because if I could just have a magic wand and I could wave it on people and say instead, right? And then they would turn around and go in a different direction. Instead, what? Do what? What do we do? How often? What, what was, what's coming after this word? This should be like a word that we're like, okay, whatever comes next, we're going to like tattoo it on our arms. He says, encourage one another every day. Okay, so this is the part where we see that the body of Christ comes into play in this warning and in this admonition in a huge way. 
this is not just about our individual journey, but this is about how we interact with each other and we press each other on towards Christ and towards their goal and towards our whole goal as a community of making much of Jesus. Encourage one another every day. As long as it is called today, as long as today lasts, again, it's the urgency of the opportunity in the here and now, so that none of you becomes hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Here, sin is actually in the, in the language being personified as though it is a person and it has the, its own capability of deceiving us. And so why is deceitfulness so tragic? Because it blinds us to what's going on in our own hearts. It makes us think that we're okay. It inhibits all spiritual growth and effectiveness for the kingdom. And it impedes the growth of the community and of the household that we were just talking about with Moses. It, I don't know if anyone here has noticed, but if one person in your community group, if one person in your family, if one of your friends that is in the family of God has a great sin in their life and they are just going for it and they are testing God, it has a communal effect. And so that's a lot of what it talks about here is becoming hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And I love how God's word never leaves us wondering what to do, right? So in those first couple verses of the warning, it's like, and then we're like, ah, well, so what do we do? He's like, well, instead, actually, like, encourage everyone every day, right? That's, That's the application. That's what we take and we run with that. And verse 14 says, since it is said today, it's repeating it back. Today, if you hear his voice, don't ever harden your heart as happened in the rebellion. And that word if shows up again. It's the same as verse 6. And it's a concept that as we continue being this household, being this body of Christ, being this inheritance, not just becoming it, it's the present and the future tense to who we are and what we are doing. Verses 16 through 19, are they're kind of, now they're kind of like the commentary on the warning. And so he goes on to have a summary. Enter. So the word enter here in verse... One of these great verses where the word enter is in here. That I forgot to underline. 19. Yes. So as they were unable to enter... So yeah, it talks about here, this concept of entering. And so the word, this word is actually literally translated the enjoyment of, right? So they would not enjoy into his rest. So they were not able to enjoy in it. Um, which would kind of be weird if we translated that in our concept, right? But I love that because it's not like you're just entering. We enter a lot of things. I enter Target. I enter, like, the doctor's office. I enter a whole bunch of things. That does not necessarily mean I enjoy Target. I want to correct that on the recording. Um, But I don't necessarily enjoy every place that I enter into, right? But here what he's saying is, like, that literally means to enjoy this. And so the great conclusion as we look at this warning is, in verse 19, it says, And so we see. We don't assume that we will not fall away. This is something that is present, but yet future to be known. Therefore, we cultivate a holy fear that keeps us pursuing God. For after all the Israelites did, they didn't trust the goodness of God to lead, protect, provide, and satisfy them. And what does verse 19 say is at the core of Israel's sin? Unbelief. The confidence in God had wavered. They had taken it upon their own selves to figure out their lives and to make things happen. They are persistent in sin in the face of God's mercy. And that's a sign of unbelief. 
When you see people around you who are persistent and continually pursuing sin, even though they know about God's grace, even though they know about the mercy of God, even though they know what God has required of them, part of the heartbreaking truth is that at the root of all that sin is unbelief. And I think this is an opportunity for you to say to yourself, do I see this in my own life? And what does that look like? And hopefully we're going to come back in a couple minutes and have an opportunity to look at what that might look like in our lives. But I'm just going to wrap up in chapter 4. So this is the exhortation from the warning. So the warning is now done. We're kind of still in those parentheses, but it's more like dot, dot, dot. And now we're going to talk about why you should be encouraged about the warning, right? In ver- chapter 4, verses 1 through six, uh, one through 13. Susan will talk next week on 13 through 16. So verses 1 through 10, he's trying to tell you, it's like, the promise is still valid. So this promise of you entering into the rest of God, like, this is not just for these people. Okay, so kind of. This is for you. The promise is still valid. The promise is still good. Therefore, we have that verse there, and he's talking about this general concept. After watching Israel have been in this embitterment and in this desert and the way and the choices that they made, Verse 1 says, fear. Therefore, let us begin to fear that. Although a promise of entering his rest, again, here's the concept of spiritual rest, we're going to talk about that in a second, still remains valid. Even one of you should seem to have come short of it. Verse 2, I'll just continue to read this real quick. It says, for certainly we have had good news told to us, just as well as they did. But the message they heard did them no good because it was not mixed with faith by those who heard it. Verse 3 says, For we, we who have believed actually begin to enter this rest, just as he has said, So I swore in my wrath that they will definitely not enter my rest. Referring back to that Psalm 95 that was quoted in verse 11. Although his works had been finished since the creation of the world. For scripture has spoken somewhere about the seventh day in the following manner, and God rested in the seventh day from all his works. And furthermore, in this passage, they will definitely not enter my rest. Since then, it remains valid for some to enter into it. And since those who earlier were told good news did not enter into it because of disobedience, he again sets a day, today, in the psalm, saying after so long an interval, and the text already quoted, today if you hear his voice, don't ever harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would have afterward be speaking of another day. Verse 9, consequently, it's like in summary of, Sabbath rest remains for the people of God. Come to verse 10 in a second, or I'll read chapter 10 now. For he who enters his rest, God's rest, also himself rests or ceases from his works as God did from his own. And so, one, what is he telling us that we need to begin to cultivate? Fear. Fear is defined here as a wholesome apprehension that keeps us on our toes. It's a concept of not drifting. It's a concept of considering that we've talked about already. It's the concept that we've seen again and again that the author is trying to give to us in different ways. Hey, actually, don't be lazy. Don't be apathetic. Don't just assume things. Stay diligent. Press on is going to be something we talked about in a little bit. Stay on your toes. In order for God's message, the good news of Christ, to benefit people, they have to believe it. Verse 2 talks about that. There's actually a lot of people who believe, right? And they don't benefit from it because they don't have the faith that goes with hearing it. Verses 3 through 5 is just adding positive and negative verification to the case that he's trying to make, that God's rest has always been available for his people, and it still is available. 
Verse 7 um, is kind of a fascinating one. That's what's up on the screen here. Again, he says, today, right? There's that, that renewal of the offer. Hey, so in case you were just still wondering, like today, right, you could like have this action that you take. And so up to this point, this word has been used to talk about rest. Up to verse 9, the whole book of Hebrews. And that is a word, that is the Greek word that has the concept of the initial entrance into God's rest. It happens at conversion, when you first believe in Jesus and, and give your life to him. And it continues to deepen because of the process of sanctification, right? And if you, so conversion, or that's when you first believe in Jesus, sanctification is that process that God makes you more like Jesus. So we don't just come to Christ and boom, like, boom, we're done. We are made more like Jesus all the time. So that's the process of God making us more like Jesus. The second word now that is in verse 9 is a different word. And so if we read that, right, we're like, rest, 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 rest. Um, but it's not. It's a different word. And that actually refers to the final and complete entrance into God's rest that happens at glorification or when we go to heaven. And so there's an important balance in that to be able to see, okay, so now... In verse 7, the offer is being renewed. It's being re-offered. Hey, today you could actually like make these cho- choices. You can make these changes. Because not only is this the rest that happens at conversion and is it happening continually in your sanctification, but it's the rest that's going to happen at, at the end of your life in glorification also. So verses 11 through 13, so it's kind of like 1 through 10 is like, hey, just so you know, the promise is still valid. It's still good. You can enter into his rest. And verses 11 through 13 is like, um, but however, diligence is necessary. And so he goes on in verse 11, and this is kind of the pinnacle point. He says, let us therefore be eager to make every effort to enter that rest lest even one fall in the same example of disobedience. He's referring there to the Israelites. This is the pinnacle point. The promise is still valid, and so is the threat of the punishment that comes from disobedience. And so there's tension here. There's tension in this verse that God does this in us, but we must put forth an effort to pursue him, to be eager towards it. Let us make every effort to enter into that rest. He goes on to talk about how basically in the concept of what's going on is that we need to examine ourselves to see if we're saved. We need to put forth effort to experience God's light, to experience his rest. There's an effort that we strive for, that we continue to pursue. And if we put forth the effort to lay hold of God's grace, which will enable me to persevere. It's that grace. It's God working that in us. It's Jesus. As we read in Hebrews 13 earlier, it is Jesus who will persevere for us. It is Jesus who will give us that strength as we continue to read the rest of the letter, as we continue to see how this flushes out. But for right now, we see that we put forth effort to lay hold of God's grace, which will enable us to persevere. Verse 12 is one of my favorite verses, probably right now, period. And not just because we're... Um, teaching through the book of Hebrews, but I think I just see this coming into so many people's lives that I work with and in my own heart too, and in, in parenting, honestly. It says, For the word of God is alive and thus effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, in that it penetrates as far as dividing soul and spirit and both joints and marrow and judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Like, boom, right? There are so many different aspects that happened in verse 12, that just brings the word of God 
right? And let's remember what we're talking about. We're talking about the diligence that is necessary to enter into that rest. And so we're not just like, and here's a random verse on the word of God. No, it is the concept that, okay, let us therefore be eager to make every effort to enter that rest, lest even one fall in the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive, and thus it's affected, and it's sharper than any double-edged sword. And so that's talking about part of the effort that we're being made, that we're, we're called to pursue for that diligence. It's for us to be able to be obedient to the word of God, to love the word of God, and to have this context of what diligence looks like. It's allow the word of God to continue to penetrate in our hearts, dividing our soul and spirit, and then judging the thoughts and attitudes of our heart, revealing what is going on inside of us. It is a word of promise. It is still good. It accomplishes its purpose, purposes, and it penetrates every aspect of who we are. 13 says, and there's definitely no creature hidden from his sight. And said, all things are, it's literally naked or exposed or uncovered before him and thus exposed to his eyes, to whom, to whom we must give an account of ourselves. And so the end of verse 12 there talks about how the word of God, it knows, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart, and then it goes into verse 13 and says, and actually because he knows, like he actually can see everything, and that's who we give an account to. And so as it wraps up this part of the warning, of the exhortation for the warning, that we need to be diligent to pursue it, he's calling us back, to the creator, to the God who knows us, right? And there's an intimate language of this. And so it's not just like, hey, and so your God is really big and you should probably fear him and like do what he says. It's a concept of inviting us into a relationship to be able to understand that obedience is part of being known and it's a response of worship. It's a response of our hearts to being known and loved and having a rest that is made for us because Jesus has done everything that we feel like we need to do for us already. And so next week, Lauren, I'm going to play that video in a second. Next week, Susan's going to talk about the help that is available through Christ in order to do this. And so I'm just totally going ahead a little bit because I don't want to leave you hanging and being like, oh, well, great. Because the book continues. This is not the end of the book. This is actually just the beginning. And so we continue to see the author flush out how help is available for us to be able to do that. And we don't need to depend on our own strength. But Jesus is there to be able to provide that for us. And so we're going to listen to a song that is by Sarah Groves. I've included the lyrics in the packet for you. I believe it was the last page. This is a song that has struck me again and again regarding how I am a lot like Israelites. And so earlier we looked about the house that we build. We listened and talked about how what our house looks like and how we have moments of disbelief and how we have moments that kind of really can affect us in that way. And so I want to give you this four minutes as the song plays to both listen to the lyrics, but I also, there's a blank page that should be on the opposite side of that. If you want to take the opportunity to just be looking into your own heart, I think a lot of times we um, have areas of doubt and disbelief, areas in our heart where our mind wanders, secret doubts, um, that we probably don't actually like to think about, so we try to keep them closed. And we maybe half think about them. We half consider Jesus and how he would enter into them. We half consider the fear of God and how he might intersect with that doubt or that unbelief. But then sometimes it gets too hard to figure out, so we just shut the closet door and we just continue on. And so I know that our lives are not often full with a lot of time for reflection. And so I just wanted to create a little four-minute space for you 
to be reflecting on, okay, so what is at the core of my disbelief? What does that look like? How does that show up? So you can kind of chart that out on that blank piece of paper. You can draw it out. You can draw out your heart, whatever it may be. My biggest desire is for you to have an opportunity to recognize where you are at. One of the last verses of the line to, of the song says, is this the reason behind all of this time and sand? Right? And so she's writing from the Israelites' perspective of so many times we paint pictures of Egypt and we think, oh, that was so much better. God, you are, this is just so hard. It's so much easier to live in slavery because it's so many unknowns when I trust you. And so she goes on to talk about, is this the reason behind all this time in sand and the time that the Israelites had to wander? Because we know that that's a consequence of their unbelief. And so for you, just to be able to absorb today, to take the opportunity of this word today and expose, to hear his voice and to choose to trust him, to fight this unbelief and encourage others. So Lauren, go ahead and play that song, and then we're going to break out into small groups.